Hey there, and welcome to the United Church Podcast. We are a new church here in Seattle committed to an ethic of love. We are striving to be a people united, united with Jesus, each other, ourselves, and the world around us. We hope you enjoyed this week's homily. We've been walking through the entire book of Mark over the past several weeks, and we've been kind of flying through it, and we are coming up to the climax, to the pinnacle of what Mark has been laying out for us over these past several weeks. We have been charging through with the understanding that what Mark has been talking about is that we, as a people of God, as as the children of God, are a part of this insurgence, this, this revolution that is here to shape the world in a new way and to change the world in a new way, a different way that gives life that gives grace, that gives mercy, that gives peace in this world in a different way. That we as a people are a called out people, a people that have been sent into the world on this mission to bring grace and love and mercy anew into this world. And so as we reach this pinnacle, as we reach the middle, as we, like the very climax of the book of Mark, Mark is starting to shift our question. Mark is starting to shift what is taking place in the entire book. At first, it was about this revolution that we get to play in, that we get to be a part of, and he's describing it for us in beautiful terms, in paradoxical ways, as he describes some of the miracles and parables that are going about. But now, as we arrive at this location in Mark chapter 14, we have a question that Mark is posing to us, that Mark is leaving with us. Whose side are you on anyways? Have you ever had anybody ask you that question? Whose side are you on anyways? I I remember back in college, I was hanging out with a group of my friends, and we were having just a massive argument, like we usually do when you're really close with people. You find yourself on two total sides of an argument, and then you're in the middle trying to mediate between two friends. You're the one that is standing there in the middle of the whole thing, and one of your friends who thinks that they're closer to you than the other friend looks at you and says, Whose side are you on anyways? And you're like, standing right here in the middle. And you're like, well, both of yours. I like you both equally. I don't think either one of you are wrong. Except maybe you're a little bit more wrong than he is. But not a lot, right? You want to stand right there in the middle of it all. You want to be found in the middle of the music. The symphony that is playing of argumentation, of distinct difference that is playing out. Whose side are you on anyways? This is the question that in Mark chapter 14, Mark is posing to us. He's drawing a line in the sand. And he's asking us as a people, whose side are you on anyways? A nice gaff tape line in the sand. Whose side are you on anyways? I think oftentimes in our culture and in the political climate that we're experiencing today, this is the question that we are left with. 
Whose side are you on anyways? When I go visit family members, they're certainly on one side of the political spectrum. They stand over here and they yell and they argue and they say, no, 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 no. This is the way in which the world works. This is the way in which the political structures need to function and focus. Whose side are you on anyways? And you have another family member that's the exact same way, but from the other side of the political spectrum, arguing and bickering, saying, but whose side are you on anyways? And you stand in the middle, attempting to make peace in your family, to be the one that is trying to turn the dial just a little bit. Hey, did you see that Super Bowl? Whoa, right? And they're like, shut up. Okay, well, uh, did, did, did you see, man, have you seen that new show Fleabag on Amazon? We don't have Amazon. Uh, have you, uh, right? And you just start finding yourself really uncomfortable in the middle of the push and the pull of the tug of war that is taking place. Whose side are you on anyways? And here's Mark in the 14th chapter turning us to this question. He has laid out in beautiful detail who this Jesus is. Of everything that Jesus has done, the miracles that he has performed, the wonderful teachings that he has given, as he has laid it all out for us to decide. And here in Mark chapter 14, he asks us the question, whose side are you on anyways? Now, Jesus was in this little town called Bethany, and he was there right before the Passover celebration, right before the, 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 the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He was hanging out with people having dinner like he was wont to do, like he would normally do on a regular occasion. He would have dinner with people left and right. And in Mark chapter 14, we find Jesus having dinner at Simon the leper's house, which is really interesting that Jesus has chosen to sit with this man who was once considered unclean. This man who was once considered abstract from the community, that had been evacuated from the community because of the disease and the sickness, the, inf uh, the, uh, the, the way in which he was infirmed as a person, was cast out of the community had no rights, had no responsibilities, had no place to be in this world. And at some point, Jesus healed him. At some point, Jesus had completely restored the man from his leprosy. But what's fascinating is he kept the title. He was Simon the leper. Even though he had been clean, even though he had been healed of all of his disease, he still maintained the title. I'm the leper as a badge of honor of what Jesus had done for him, of the miracle that had abounded in his life, of the clean, of, of the cleansing that he had had as a human. He kept the title. And here is Jesus in this home with his disciples and with other people. It wasn't just Jesus and his disciples and Simon the leper, but Simon the leper would have brought people in to say, you've got to meet this guy, this Jesus that healed me. Simon had probably gone throughout his town and saying, hey, I'm going to throw a gigantic feast. We're going to have a big, big old barbecue in my backyard. Come to the rooftop and hang out 
with us as a people as we roast a pig, as we throw sausages on the grill, as we flip the hamburger buns upside down so they can get just the perfect amount of toastiness to them before you slab on that gigantic hunk of hamburger meat and all the fixings, right? Like Simon is excited about this feast that he is throwing, this dinner that he is throwing at his house and knowing that Jesus was going to be there. And so he's out telling everyone, he's got people in his household telling, hey, go see the guy that healed my uncle. Go see the guy that healed my dad. Go see the guy. Come eat with us together. Simon was throwing this huge feast, and so people came. People came, and it wasn't just, it wasn't just Jesus and the townspeople, but it was religious leaders as well had made their way into this home, into this gigantic feast now, they ate a little different than we do today, right? When they sat around a table, they didn't actually sit at a table. I remember when we had Thanksgiving at our apartment, we had 20-plus people crammed around our tiny apartment table. We had grabbed table after table after table to extend the room all, like, I don't know, 30 feet wide, right? Everybody had like a foot and a half of space to sit next to each other as they were eating and drinking and being merry. This would be the same sort of thing that is taking place at Simon's house, table after table after table after table. However, they didn't sit at tables. They didn't sit in chairs. They reclined. They would, with their legs back, like lay in this like diagonal position, just reclined at the table. I really wish we still did that today, right? They would just lay down and eat, right, as you're, you're just, just covered in food around this gigantic table with all these people. Now, your legs would kind of be laying out behind you. You kept your feet, the nastiest part of your body, away, the furthest away from the table as possible. That's just sanitary, right? So you just keep your feet far, far away. When this woman, this woman comes into the house, comes to the dinner table, and what's Really interesting is we don't know if she was invited or if she just knew about it. We don't know if she was sitting around the table or not. She just appears in the story, a character in the story. Now, she comes up to Jesus, and this story is actually told in all four Gospels. It's, it's that important of a story. In all four Gospels, this story takes place, and in one of the Gospels, she's named Mary. She comes with an alabaster jar, this kind of pitcher-like thing that was made of clay and had in it nard, which is this really, really, really expensive perfume. But it wasn't really so much perfume as it was like the root of the perfume, the thing that we used to make the perfume. And as they talk about this nard in different commentaries and in different places, it actually was like this really super, super, super expensive nard that came from, from India. So it would have not only been expensive to produce, but expensive to import to Israel. We're talking India to Israel. That's a long way. That's a long distance to travel for this jar of expensive perfume. And the woman would then take it and poured it on Jesus' feet and began to cleanse them, to, to wipe them, to rub it in to his feet. Almost like this really great massage, right? 
If you've ever sat on a massage table as they finally get to your feet, some of you are like, oh, that's like the best part, right? They, they put a little bit of extra of that oil on their hands and they go right to town on your feet. And you're just like, yes, now I can sleep, right? And it's usually like the last thing they do before they leave you, right? It's the last thing. And you're like, no, 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 I want to sleep. But now you're telling me I have to get up and leave, right? So she pours it all over his feet. And then she's not done. She breaks the jar. Oh, you thought I was going to do it, didn't you? <laughs> she breaks the jar on the ground to get every last crevice of oil from the pitcher that none of it would go to waste and continues to rub it on Jesus' feet. Now, this wouldn't be a slow or this wouldn't be a short time frame. She would have been doing this for minutes upon minutes upon minutes. And Jesus never really acknowledges her that she's doing it. But people around the table sure do. People around the table understand what she's doing. And they're really upset because of the expensive nature of this perfume. That it would have actually cost more than a year's wages for this jar that she is now dumping all over his feet. Breaking the jar and grabbing every last ounce of it. That none of it would go to waste. People around the table are talking about it. And they're upset. They're indignant, is what the text says. They're filled with anger at what this woman is doing. And they begin to chastise her for it. They begin to rebuke her for what it is that she is doing. And Jesus stops them. Jesus stops them. And he says to them, Leave her alone. Leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Leave her alone. Jesus, in the midst of this table, in the midst of the quiet and the peace that is taking place there, as people are grumbling, Jesus doesn't stand in the middle and say, hey guys, it's all good, it's all good. Like, hey, just... Don't worry about it, right? Like, I know you're upset. That's probably pretty expensive. But, you know, and hey, it, it's okay. Don't, don't, don't worry about it. Like, it's all good. He doesn't do that. He doesn't stand in the middle of this line. He jumps to her defense. He comes and he stands on her side and says, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? What on earth has she ever done to you? Can't you see this beautiful thing that she is doing for me? What's so beautiful about it is the meaning behind it. The only people that were ever truly anointed with oil in this sort of way at this time would have been prophets, priests, or kings. Prophets, priests, or kings. Those were the only people in this day that was anointed in such a way. And Jesus sees this beautiful act that is taking place. Jesus sees what it is that she is doing for him. She, he understands the meaning that is taking place behind it all, that she is anointing him as some sort of prophet, that she is anointing him as some sort of priest, that she is anointing him as some sort of king. And while they're all upset, while they're all bickering and arguing about it, Jesus says, leave her alone, be quiet. This matters. This is important. It is a woman here 
in the first century whom had no rights, who had no nothing about herself that, that was allowed to speak out truth in any way, shape, or form, speaking her truth, speaking her truth about who this Jesus was, whom she had seen him to be, and not speaking, but performing an, a sacred act of worship there in that space, in that moment. And while the men bickered and argued and complained about what she was doing, Jesus rose to her defense and said, leave her alone. Be quiet. Just watch what it is that she is doing here in this space and in this moment. Learn from her. Jesus continues on. He says, the poor will, you will always have with you. And you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Just before this, Jesus had already spoken to his disciples on three different occasions to let them know that he was going to die. And here he is calling back to that moment and saying, look, guys, I'm not going to be around forever. You're only going to have a limited time with me. Quit chastising her for what it is that she is doing because what they were bickering about, what they were arguing about was how she was spending her money. A year's worth of wages. And their argument comes from this like righteous, holy place, right? This, I'm going to sit on top of the world and look down and judge you for how you're spending your money. You just wasted a year's worth of wages. If you really wanted to do something good with that, you could have sold that perfume for, for even under market value. And you could have given that to the poor. You could have done great things with all of this money. You could have made a huge difference. But here, in this space, she's saying, I know exactly what I'm doing. And you all need to see it. You all need to see who this Jesus is. If you're not going to allow me to speak, if you're not going to allow me to tell you who this Jesus is, then I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you who he is through my actions. And it's going to upset you. And it's going to make you so mad. But I need you to see that it is on this side of the line that you need to be. That is on this side of the line where you need to stand and you need to stand with me here in this place, in this moment. Leave her alone. Whose side are you on anyways? Was Jesus' response to his disciples and to the others that were in the room grumbling about her. Grumbling. He then finishes, Truly I tell you, Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. This moment is on that level of importance. This moment is on the same level of importance of what the gospel is, of what the core of the gospel is. It's about choosing whom you will serve, choosing whom you will anoint as prophet, priest, and king in your life, in this space. 
of living out the gospel not just through words but through action, of being like her and serving with everything that you have and all that you are in that place. It was St. Francis of Assisi who, well, it was attributed to him. But there's a long-standing quote. Preach the gospel always. And if necessary, use words. Preach the gospel always. And if necessary, use words. That the way in which we live our life, the way in which we act, the way in which we are in this world preaches the gospel more often than what we speak. It's not to say that words are not important, but it's to elevate the importance of how we live and of our actions, of how we love, how we spread grace and mercy wherever we go and with all that we are. Preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. This woman shows us that. The woman at Bethany shows us that. Mary shows us that. How we live our lives makes a greater difference than what we say. How we live our lives makes more of a difference than what we say. The Archbishop Emeritus Desmond Tutu said this, if you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. Desmond Tutu was the archbishop and a part of the Truth Commission down in South Africa as they worked together to reconcile the, the black people and the white people in the country after apartheid as they worked together to make a difference, as they held these truth commissions, he said that if you are neutral in situations of injustice, if you fancy yourself here as this bridge builder, one that can bring both sides together at the table, if you are neutral in, in, if you are neutral in situations of injustice, what you have actually done is chosen the side of the oppressor. Because you can no longer do anything to speak about what true justice is for those that are being oppressed, for those that are receiving condemnation, for those that are impoverished and poor, for those that are under the thumb of the systems and structures of our society. If you are neutral in this space, you cannot do anything for them that what we actually have to do is stand on their side. The first act is to make a conscious decision to step towards them and hear from others who say, whose side are you on anyways? I am on the side of justice. I am on the side of God. I am on the side of Jesus who sat there in that room at that dinner table and said, leave her alone. Quiet. Stop what it is that you're doing. Stand up and cross over here and be here with me as I stand in the gap in between you and them. There's, Angie Thomas wrote a book called The Hate You Give. 
and it was just turned into an HBO, well, it was turned into a movie that was released, and now it's, it's on HBO right now. And at the end of the movie, at the end of the book, the book is fantastic, and surprisingly, I can actually say the movie is fantastic as well. Surprisingly, right? Usually the book is better than the movie. This is not the case. Like, they're equally good. At the end of the movie, there's this young man who is standing with a gun. He's not just young. He's like seven, eight years old with a gun as he is trying to stand up for his dad who is about to be murdered. His dad who is about to be killed. He pulls out a gun that was his dad's gun that had fallen out of his pants in a tussle. He points it at the man that is about to cause the harm when the police show up. Now, this is an African-American family in an African-American community, and the police show up, and this is a movie and a book that is, centers all around police brutality and police violence and the experience of what that is and what that looks like in this community, of how it has colored and tainted that community. And as the police show up, they draw their guns and they yell at the seven-year-old kid, drop your gun, drop the weapon. And he stands there completely terrified, pointing the gun at the other man. And the, the, you can just feel the temperature rise more and more and more and more in the scene. As the temperature rises and as the yelling increases, as the police get more and more frightened and scared as to what is going to happen, as the father stands there telling him to put down the gun with his hands up. Just drop it. Just drop the gun. Star, who is the star of the story, with her hands up, steps in front of the little boy and the police officers. She, with her hands up, puts herself in the line of fire. And at that moment, the temperature drops because the young boy drops the gun in that space and in that place. She steps in the line of fire. She puts her body there without saying a word. She steps in between it all and makes the difference. Whose side are you on anyways? If you are neutral in situations of injustice, you've chosen the side of the oppressor. Star did not remain neutral for her own benefit. She stepped across the line and in front of the line of fire to step in and make a difference. To make that difference. Whose side are you on anyways? The theologian Jürgen Moltmann, in his book, The Source of Life, said, the church represents God's coming kingdom if it makes itself the voice of people who don't yet have a voice of their own. The church represents God's coming kingdom if it makes itself the voice of a people who don't yet have a voice of their own. There are so many people in our world, so many people in our city that have no voice, that are constantly being told to shut up and sit down. Wait your turn. Be patient. Not yet. Be quiet. And yet they face tremendous amounts of opposition and injustice in their life. 
we, the church, the people, the body of Christ, are to be the ones that step in and say, no, 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 you need to listen. It's how we live and how we act, but it's also what we say to the other side. It has been almost a hundred days, almost a hundred days since we, or not, not days, a hundred weeks since we started serving food at Tent City Five, which is now known as Safe Harbor, yeah, the, the tent city that occurs on the, on the backside of our hill. It's a beautiful, beautiful community. In fact, it was last weekend or two weekends ago that we were invited to a barbecue that they put on for us as a church and as a people and other, other churches and other communities that have decided to invest their time into Tent City. It was a way of them not only giving back to us, but of having conversations, of trying to learn more about who we are as a people. In almost 100 weeks, I think we're at week 50, uh, I think we're at week 50, or uh, sorry, in almost 100, 100 weeks, we're like week 98. Like we're like two weeks away from hitting that 100th, that century mark of doing this for 100 different weeks. We go once a week. We have served 4,277 meals in the time frame of, of where we're at. And that's probably a lower estimate because I try to shoot a little low on some of our estimations with things. I think that's a lower estimate, 4,277 meals of us pitching in guacamole here or shredded cheese there or tortillas or making the main dish of chili or of pulled pork or sloppy joes, breakfast burritos on the fifth weeks of the month, right? This is the things that we're engaging with, of, of standing with our neighbors and by our side. And we've actually started to gain a bit of a voice. It was probably about four or five months ago that, that we were invited, hey, we need help at City Hall. They're going to have a, a conversation about whether we can stay here and we need help. And so a couple people showed up in that space to make their voices known. And, and now we have a representative named Jen, <laughs> who is a part of the Community Action Committee that, that not only speaks into what is taking place at Tent City and how we as a people can help, but also has a vote. They have like a voting block. Right? Like a vote into what is taking place there and how to move things forward in progress and in hope. Now, this isn't like some sort of long-term stay for people. This is, this is their step into a home. I, I think it was just last year, correct me, Jen, was it 50 different families had been housed last year alone? Oh, I don't have this. I don't know. Okay, that's okay. Putting you on the spot. It's all right. I, but it's, it's like 40 to 50 different families have been housed in the past year, have found permanent homes, some of which were waiting for very difficult homes because they're, uh, they're uh, disabled. And so they, don't, they, they need ADA-accessed apartments that are at low-income prices, which is really difficult, really difficult to find in our city. But yet that has happened. We, by our constant presence, by our constant expression of love in that space, are making a difference. And now we have the opportunity to speak, to speak out on their behalf. The church represents God's coming kingdom if it makes itself the voice of people who don't yet have a voice of their own. How are we making their voices heard? 
How are we making their voices known, their existence known? Not just those that are at Safe Harbor, but those in our building, in our neighborhood, in our block. How are we making their voices known together as a people? As Mark continues through 14 and 15, he continually asks the question, whose side are you on anyways? Whose side are you on anyways? He goes through the Last Supper, this opportunity to remember that we still celebrate today and which we will celebrate in a moment. This opportunity for us to remember Christ's body and blood that were broken and shed for us. He even then predicts Peter's denial that Peter, when asked the question, whose side are you on anyways, would reject Jesus and stand opposed to him in that moment. When Jesus is arrested at Gethsemane, when he is arrested and about to be put on trial, all of his disciples in that space are asked that question, whose side are you on anyways? And at that moment that they're arrested by the Roman guards, they all flee. They run. They deny Jesus in that moment. They flee left and right when Jesus is arrested. And when Jesus is crucified upon the cross, when this mysterious thing happens of his execution and why and what it's all about, when that happens, the only disciple left is John. Of the 12, the others have run and fled. They have left Jesus alone to die with just his mother and John at the foot of the cross. Whose side are you on anyways? Whose side are you on? The cross is this mysterious thing. This mysterious thing that gives us life that brings about a sense not only of life in the here and now, but life eternal. This thing that continues to extend for ages upon ages upon ages. And what this whole thing between heaven and earth looks like and what the afterlife looks like is just this gigantic mystery. But the one thing that it does is when we choose that life, when we choose to say yes to Jesus completely as prophet, as priest, as king, as the Lord of our lives, when we stand on this side of the line and we look at the cross, we know that it is about making a difference in this world now and forevermore. That this life that we are given, that this life that comes heals all of the separations that we experience in this world. It heals all of the separations that occur in our life. That we can now have peace with those that stand opposed to us. That we can stand in the gap as they continue to make a different statement about what this world is about. And we can reach out our hands and say, leave them alone, but come over here. Come to this side and see what this life looks like. We can have healing between us and them. There, may not, there, there does not have to be any more enmity, any more anger, any more hostility but there can be true peace when they come to the side of righteousness, when they come to the side of life. We can have peace within ourselves of understanding who we truly are at the very core of our being, that we can truly understand that we are not a separated person or individual with different masks or, or identities that we have to place upon our, ourselves, but that we can be fully ourselves 
and who God created us to be. We can have right relationship between us and God. That we no longer have to be enemies to God, standing on the other side saying, no, this is how it is. We no longer have to be at war with God. We no longer have to be at war with this creation, but we can actually take care of the world that is around us, this creation that is around us. As massive droughts continue to hit the world left and right, as cities like Chennai in India are being laid waste of water, the sixth largest city in India with virtually no water left, their entire reservoir is being evaporated because of a massive drought. We can make a difference there. That we are the people that can stand in the gap and figure the things out that need to be figured out to make change in this world right. This is the life that God has given us, that God has called us to be and to live into. And yet the fascinating mystery of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection stands before us. And it's a simple yes or no. Whose side are you on? Because no longer can we stand in the middle. But now it's time to make a choice. It's time to make a decision. Whose side are you on anyways? God, we thank you for your son. And we thank you for what it is, not only that he did, but how he continues to show us what it means to be human. What it means to be a person in all of its fullness. Father, may we continue to wrestle with these ideas and these thoughts. And may not only we continue to wrestle with them, but Father, help us to come to that decision of whose side are we on. Let us no longer straddle the line in the middle, but may we step with boldness, with faith, with love into your camp as we make a difference in this world around us. Father, it's in your son's name that we pray all of these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's homily. If you're in Seattle, we'd love for you to join us on Sundays at noon at 1316 Third Avenue West in Queen Anne. If you'd like to support our efforts, please visit unitedchurch.gives to partner with us financially. Be in peace and God bless.